0: Listening to the podcast, Pharmacology for the Pre Hospital Professional. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. This podcast is a companion to the textbook, Pharmacology for the Pre Hospital Professional, published by Elsevier. Welcome back to the podcast, Pharmacology for the Pre Hospital Professional. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Some of you may be checking your iPod right about now. You thought, well, maybe I downloaded the podcast, ICU Rounds. That's our other podcast that we do. We wanted to introduce some people uh, to the pharmacology podcast because I think there would be a common audience uh, between the two groups. The topic that I'd like to discuss today is a topic that is of importance and interest to both groups, whether you're a critical care provider a regular listener to the podcast ICU rounds, or a pre-hospital provider and a listener to uh, pharmacology for the pre-hospital professional. And that is IV fluids and administration. Now, IV lines are started to administer IV fluids and provide access for rapid delivery of emergency medications. Now, various types of IV fluids are used based on the clinical needs of the patient. Not all IV fluids are created equal, but what makes each type unique The most obvious answer is the electrolytes and concentrations that compose the various IV fluids. Now the human body is essentially a bag of seawater and it's divided into various compartments. And these compartments are the intracellular fluid, which is the fluid found inside the cells, and the extracellular fluid. Now extracellular fluid is further divided into what we call the intravascular and the interstitial fluid. Basically, the fluid between the cells and outside the vascular bed. That's what's the interstitial fluid. Now, a common misconception is that administered IV fluids are targeted and remain within the confines of the body's blood vessels. By altering the various concentrations of the electrolytes in the IV fluids, especially sodium, The professional can target the fluid to the body's different fluid compartments. Now, blood is an instrument to increase oxygen delivery to peripheral tissues. Over the past 10 years, the indications for blood transfusions have become increasingly stringent. It is a misperception and a misuse of a very valuable product, i.e. blood, to basically use blood as a method of intravascular volume expansion. Now, this particular podcast, and perhaps we need to break it down, we're going to focus on the different indications of IV fluid replacement and the various types of fluids used. Now, we're going to start with a case. And imagine you're a ranger with the National Park Service. For the past two days, you've been involved in a search for two lost hikers. The hikers are found at the base of a canyon. You attend to the first patient, which is a 20-year-old man who appears weak and severely dehydrated. He tells you that his partner, he and his partner were out of water for about two and a half days and the temperature was in excess Of 90 degrees Fahrenheit. He reports that he has not urinated in the past 24 hours, and when he did, his urine was dark. On examination, the patient's skin is warm and dry. He has a poor skin trigger, his mucous membranes of his mouth are dry, and he has an almost tacky appearance to his mucous membranes. His heart rate is about 122 beats per minute, his blood pressure he measures at 96 over 78. His respiratory rate is about 18 breaths per minute. He weighs approximately 80 kilos. Now, the patient arrives at the hospital, nurse draws blood for evaluation and his a serum electrolytes in, as well as renal function. The physicians agree uh, with your assessment that the patient is significantly dehydrated. The laboratory test results indicate acute renal insufficiency manifested by an elevated serum creatinine as well as an elevated blood urea nitrogen. His serum sodium level is markedly elevated because of the dehydration. The physicians calculate that the patient's free water deficit is about 6 liters. The physician tells you he will replace only half of that fluid in the next 24 hours. He explains that too rapid fluid replacement can cause the serum sodium to drop too rapidly, which could potentially lead to a form of brain damage. Now, this particular patient appears to be dehydrated from a combination of excessive exposure and lack of hydration. Dehydration is a loss of water from the fluid space inside the cells. Dehydration can take hours to days to develop. As the cells dehydrate, it begins to malfunction, leading to poor function of tissues, and poor function of tissues basically leads eventually to organ failure. Now, dehydration can be illustrated by managing what a grape is to a cell. A grape slowly loses fluid and dehydrates to form a raisin. With dehydration, the cells lose fluid and basically wither. And as they wither, a withering cell basically doesn't function well and again go back to this mindset of well what's so bad if a particular cell begins to wither and doesn't work well well The problem is is that one cell isn't by itself going to wither and dehydrate. The problem is is that millions of these cells are going to wither and dehydrate. Therefore, the tissues made up of these cells don't function, and the organs made up of these tissues don't function. And that results into what we call multi-organ dysfunction and eventually death. Now, as a general rule, conditions that quickly develop should be quickly corrected. And conditions that slowly develop should be slowly corrected. For example, after acute blood loss such as in trauma, volume replacement occurs over a short and often measured in minutes to hours because the blood loss occurred over a rather brief period. Fluid loss and dehydration occurs over a period of days. When such patients are evaluated at the hospital, physicians often calculate the patient's free water deficit or fluid deficit. If a patient has a calculated flu, a free water deficit of about 6 liters, typically no more than half of that calculated deficit should be replaced in the first 24-hour period. The patient that we talked about above's condition of dehydration developed over several days. Therefore, his dehydration should be corrected in a slow and deliberate fashion. An initial fluid bolus to 1-2 to two liters of isotonic crystalloid. sodium chloride would be appropriate with the balance of the fluid loss replaced over the next 24 to 48 hours. The purpose in pre-hospital care in this particular scenario is to start rehydrating the patient, which begins with choosing an IV fluid that provides rehydration to the intracellular space and expands the volume of fluid within the vascular space. Now, as previously mentioned, a cell that has become dehydrated is like a grape that becomes a raisin. Additionally, the stranded hiker's low blood pressure and tachycardia also indicate that he has some depletion of his intravascular volume. Therefore, the choice of IV fluid should be one that provides some fluid resuscitation to both the intracellular space as well as the intravascular space. And what would you use to the, replace the, the um, uh, intracellular space is typically a free water type of fluid. One potential choice for this particular setting would be isotonic crystalloids, or D5W in water. Well, it's typically also called D5W. Now, many of you would promptly argue, well, my unit doesn't carry D5W. Well, there's a lot of things that particular amputers don't carry, because it really makes it logistically difficult to have five or six different types of IV fluids, where in the vast majority of times you only particularly need one or two. A basic understanding of the body fluid compartments is required to understand the implications of IV fluid administration, and in, in this case, treat the patient's particular. In this, in this case, treat this patient's dehydration. Next, we're going to talk about body fluid um, compartments. Now, most of the human body is composed of water. In adults, this amount is approximately 45 to 65 percent of the body. In an average man weighing about 80 kilos, this is approximately 48 liters of fluid. The total amount of water in the body is known as, hold on your half for this one, the total body water. Now, total body water is divided into two main compartments. You have the intracellular fluid and the extracellular fluid. Intracellular fluid is found inside the cells, and where do you think we find the extracellular fluid? Well, it's found outside the cells, typically between the cells and the blood vessels. Now, if you have the book, we're looking at chap- of, of figure 5-1, and in figure 5-1, you can see that we've taken basically the form of an entire human being, and we said that 45-65% to 65% of that is made up of water. Of that, um, uh, you have a third made up of the extracellular fluid, and two-thirds made up of the intracellular fluid. Break that down even further, intravascular fluid is a quarter or one-fourth of that extracellular fluid, and three-fourths of that extracellular fluid is the fluid that rests inside, in between cells, known as interstitial fluid. And we're going to explain this a little bit further using an example of what I call uh, uh, plumbing in brick walls to, to give you a better visual of what's going on here. Now, I, I want to go in a little bit more as to what is this interstitial fluid. Interstitial fluid is the space outside the vascular space that's between the cells. Now, for the sake of the uh, illustration, consider blood vessels to be pipes running alongside a brick wall. Okay, And if you have the book, we're looking at figure 5-2. If you don't have the book, imagine we've got an illustration of we've got a brick wall, and you see the bricks, and you see the mortar between it. Right next to it, you have just a regular type of of, of piping. Now, if you have that visual, if you're looking at it in the textbook, or if you're using your imagination, the volume inside the the pipes is the intravascular space. That seems pretty easy to figure out. The bricks themselves are the cells of the body, and the volume of those bricks is the intracellular volume. On the brick wall, the mortar is the narrow space between the bricks. The definition of interstitial is the narrow space between things or parts. So in this example of a brick wall, the mortar of the wall is really the interstitial space, the volume of fluid outside the bricks or cells. The mortar, the interstitial fluid, and the volume of the pipes, the intravascular fluid, both compose the extracellular fluid of the body. Now water is able to move freely from one body compartment to another. The compartments are separated by membranes that water can move freely across. The concentration of particles in a particular body compartment drives the movement of these particles. Now particles can be dissolved in salt or it could be a body protein. But they, these particles cannot always freely pass across these different membranes separating the body compartments. Remember now, water can and these solutes, the salts or the proteins, can't. Cell membranes are pretty particular regarding which type of particles they allow in into each different little compartment or into the internal environment of a cell. In the body, the key particle is the electrolyte sodium. Now, particles that cannot freely pass across a membrane act as magnets for fluid. Okay, so if you have more particles, you're going to have more fluid because the particles are attracting, they're holding on to that fluid. So if you've got a membrane and there's more particles on one side of a membrane than the other, then it's fair to say what? There's going to be more water on that side with the more particles. And this is a basic concept of osmosis. Now let's go into this a little bit farther. When particles are trapped on one side of a membrane that is permeable to water, the water will move towards the higher concentration of particles. The movement of water across such a membrane towards a higher concentration of particles is known as osmosis. And an example of this is illustrated in 5.3. Now when water or d5w which is free of any particles is added to one compartment it is then freely distributed to the various bodies compartments in a proportion to the percentage of total body water for example if one liter of water is administered as an IV bolus to a patient, it will then be redistributed to the various compartments. Um, uh, in an example, it's demonstrated in in 5.4 of the book, and we'll have to explain to those who aren't listening or don't have the book, but are just listening to the podcast. So if you give a liter of D5W IV, two-thirds of that is going to go in the intracellular fluid. Now remember, we said two-thirds of the body water is intracellular fluid. So of that liter... 666 cc's or milliliters are going to go into the intracellular fluid. Now the extracellular fluid, which we said is made up of the interstitial space and the intravascular space, only 333 uh, milliliters are going to remain. Be mindful that we gave all of that fluid into the intravascular space. And what happens? It redistributes it. And only a small portion of it stays intravascular. All this movement of water typically occurs in the 30 minutes of administration of the IV bolus, and less than 9% of it remains in the blood vessels at the end of 30 minutes. Because the fluid that is administered lacks any particles, the water can freely distribute itself among all the various body compartments. Now, an IV fluid that distributes through the several body compartments is said to have a large volume of distribution. Now, that's a definition. It's likely to show up on an exam. Those of you maybe uh, pre-hospital providers that are listening to this podcast as part of their pharmacology course, that's something that you're probably going to see perhaps in a review question. Or as an exam. And what is the volume and distribution? Volume distribution is basically the volume for which a particular medicine, in this case a fluid, will distribute through the various body compartments. Now this type of fluid, one with a large volume uh, volume and distribution, improves a patient's intravascular as well as extravascular volume. Now, in Chapter 1 of the textbook, we actually talked about the notion that medications or drugs must get to their intended uh, site of action to achieve the desired effect. Well, these same properties apply to IV fluids. If the intent of the provider is to increase intravascular volume, well, the provider must choose a fluid that provides maximal expansion of the intravascular space. Attempting to improve a patient's intravascular volume by giving a fluid, which is only 9% of it, of every 100 milliliters, administered remains in the intravascular space is pretty inefficient. A better choice of IV fluid, in that particular case, might be to use one in which, say, 25 milliliters of every 100 milliliters administered remains in the vascular space. And this, these examples demonstrate the concept of, of volume and distribution. When the treatment goal is fluid resuscitation, a smaller volume and distribution will be more efficient. By decreasing the distribution volume, a greater proportion of the fluids administered remain within the vascular space. Now, infusion of fluids containing particles reduces the volume of distribution. That is, limiting the movement of particles limits um, the volume of distribution, and more of the fluid remains in the vascular space. Returning to the previous example, consider a change in the type of fluid from D5W to a fluid typically used in pre-hospital settings, such as normal saline or 0.9% normal saline, or Ringer's lactate solution. The salt and electrolytes in these fluids serves as particles. Their sodium concentration approximates that of the extracellular space, and the intracellular space is excluded. Such fluids are called isotonic fluids. Isotonic solutions have the same sodium concentration as body water. We have a definition, and and therefore we're going to repeat that again. Isotonic fluids or isotonic solutions have the same sodium concentration as body water. If the patient is given, say, a liter of normal saline over 60 minutes, the resultant increase in the intravascular volume is approximately 250 milliliters. And we demonstrate in this book by showing an example in uh, figure 5.5. Five. Now again, 1,000 milliliters of normal saline. The intracellular uh, fluid, uh, salt particles will not enter, basically does not expand at all. The extracellular fluid, uh, which is one-third of the total body water, 1,000 of it stays there. Basically, the interstitial fluid, three-fourths of it goes to in the interstitial fluid, or 750 cc's. The intravascular fluid, about 250 cc's. Now, predicting the volume and distribution of different types of IV fluids, say, um, a quarter normal or half normal saline, is possible to determine the optimal fluid to administer. Uh, now, in Table 5-1 of the textbook, we list different types of IV fluids, and we show how much a liter uh, bolus of each of these different types of fluids, whether it's normal saline or ringer's lactate or half normal or quarter normal or D5W, uh, will impact the intracellular space, the extracellular space, as well as the various interstitial and intravascular compartments. And some people are rather surprised when they first see that. The fluid the patient receives should provide some expansion of the intravascular volume as well as the fluid of the interstitial, excuse me, the intracellular space. A good choice of IV fluids uh, in, in a case like that would be like half normal saline. Now let's present you with another clinical scenario, and imagine that you are dispatched to provide assistance to a woman who is reporting of having severe diarrhea. After your arrival, you learn that the patient ate a buffet dinner about an hour before feeling ill. She informs you she's had abdominal cramping, followed by two bouts of emesis, followed by several episodes of severe, watery diarrhea. You're thinking good times here. Your assessment of the patient reveals a 34-year-old woman who is resting on her living room couch. She reports mild abdominal discomfort. She is mildly diaphoretic. Her heart rate is 134 beats per minute. Her blood pressure is 88 over 66. So putting that together, she's tachycardic, and she has a low blood pressure. Her respiratory rate is about 20 breaths per minute. Her mucous membranes are dry. Again, another sign of dehydration. And on physical examination, she's tachycardic. Her lungs are clear. Her abdomen is soft and only some mild tenderness. Uh, is felt on deep palpation. So again, looking at this clinical scenario, I have a patient here who is reasonably dehydrated, and, and she's tachycardic, she's hypotensive, she's a little bit tachypneic, and we can go into why that is a sign of somebody being hypovolemic. But this patient has acute hypovolemia from vomiting and diarrhea. Nobody would argue that she is symptomatic, and um, as demonstrated by the tachycardia and low blood pressure, the cause of the acute hypovolemia. Uh, must be distinguished from hypovolemia due to acute blood loss. Now, this patient lost fluid that is a, uh, essentially composed of water and electrolytes. In contrast, acute hemorrhage uh, is from loss of plasma and red blood cells. Now, a, a blood sample from the patient with diarrhea is likely to reveal that her blood count, hemoglobin concentration, or hematocrit, uh, to be elevated. The concentration of red blood cells increases, with a decrease in intravascular fluid, whereas the number of red blood cells remains unchanged. In contrast, with several hours of volume loss, say from acute blood loss, the blood counts, and this is the hemoglobin and the manicret, decrease from the loss of red blood cells and the intravascular fluid. Because this patient's condition developed acutely over a period of hours, the treatment needs to take place over a period of hours. The objective of treatment is volume expansion of the intravascular space, and this can be accomplished by giving an infusion of isotonic fluid, such as normal saline or Ringer's lactate, which provides re expansion of the vascular space. Now, let's talk about volume expansion here. Okay? Intravascular volume is often depleted by conditions, illnesses, and injuries, and the restoration of that volume is required to re establish perfusion of vital organs and tissues. Decreased volume results in a decrease in cardiac output, and a decreased cardiac output results in a decrease in oxygen delivery. In this case, the patient needs a fluid that maximally expands the intravascular volume. Isotonic fluids, such as normal saline and ringer's lactate, allow the greatest expansion of the intravascular volume. A general rule is that for any given amount of blood loss, at least three times that amount of crystalloid is required to increase The intravascular volume to compensate for the loss of blood let me say that again for a given amount of blood loss at least three times the amount of crystalloid is required to increase the intravascular volume to compensate for the loss of blood that seems rather extreme so if a patient loses a liter of blood, I need to give them roughly three liters of crystalloid to compensate for that one one liter loss of blood. Why is that? Well, let's go back to what we've already talked about. We talk about that fluids... When we give it intravascularly, redistribute through not only the intravascular space, but also the interstitial space and the intracellular space. And we've said that if we give somebody a liter of normal saline, at the end of an hour, only roughly 250 cc's of that stays intravascular. So if we lose roughly a liter of fluid, and we give somebody a liter of crystalloid back, and we're trying to re-expand their intravascular volume by a liter... We know that a liter of saline or a liter of lactated ringers is not going to do it. Why? Because 75% of that leaves the intravascular space. So if I want to approximate my blood loss, I need to give three and sometimes four times the amount of crystalloid that the patient lost in the form of blood, and this is called the rule of three to- one. and what's interesting about this is you'll see this a lot in PH,TLS and ATLS courses, but these studies of the three to one of three to-one replacement were actually done on, on normal volunteers, not people who were injured, um, and therefore, the people who are injured, you see a, a greater volume of distribution and therefore a greater need to give more IV fluids. Now, for any significant amount of fluid or blood loss that would produce clinical symptoms of hypovolemia, the amount of required fluid replacement is really beyond that of most pre-hospital EMS protocols in regards from a pre hospital perspective, any significant fluid resuscitation is beyond the scope of what can be accomplished in the field. so the real moral of the story is is that rapid transport to an appropriate facility is necessary Now be mindful that if somebody 's bleeding from a traumatic injury, a gunshot wound, or a lacerated femoral artery from a motor vehicle crash. The treatment for that blood loss is not saline, and and quite frankly, the treatment for the blood loss is stop the bleeding. And as a surgeon, we'd say bright lights and cold steel. Um, so that, that's what you really need to get somebody uh, regarding a traumatic injury. Now, hypovolemia patients must be transferred to definitive care in a timely fashion because we need to treat the underlying cause, in diarrhea. Uh, you could replace the fluids and, and treat the underlying source of the diarrhea, whether infectious or what have you. But in the case of trauma, you need to get the patient rapidly to a facility uh, where the injury that is causing the ongoing fluid loss can be treated. Now, after a period of blood loss, the body responds by attempting to what I call auto-resuscitate or shift the fluid from both the intracellular space and the interstitial space into the intravascular space. The result is that cells can become dehydrated and malfunction, causing organ failure. Resuscitation is the administration of IV fluids to patients to replace lost fluids. Shortly after acute blood loss, the body recognizes the need to expand the intravascular volume and responds by shifting fluids from the intravascular space towards the intravascular space. And this man of the body automatically attempts to resuscitate itself, um, what we would call auto-resuscitation. Let me expand on this more than we do in the the text. And what I'm trying to explain here is that if we take two individuals, two identical individuals, and we take them and say we stab them, Okay, and we, we stab them and we stop their bleeding. They both lose the exact amount of blood. Now, one person, before we stabbed them, we drew a, we call it H&H. We measured their hemoglobin and hematocrit, And they had a hemoglobin of, say, 12 and a hematocrit of, say, 30. I was 35. So, it was normal. They have a hemoglobin of 12 at the time of the injury. We lose half their blood. We take the first twin emergently into the emergency room. And we grab another hemoglobin. And what is his hemoglobin? His hemoglobin is the exact same. It is 12. Even though he's lost half of his blood volume. If you draw a somatocrit, what's his somatocrit? It would be the same as it was before he got injured. How was that possible? He just lost half his blood volume. Well, take a glass. I don't care what you want to do. If you want to make a glass of Coke, uh, or you're having a rough day and you're interested in a good adult beverage, make it a glass of beer. And that you taste the beer, and it's got it's a good beer or a good diet Coke or what have you. And um, but then you empty half of that glass onto the floor, or down your gullet. What is the concentration of the beer that's in the rest of that glass? It's the same. It hasn't been diluted at all, but the vessel is half empty. Well, a hemoglobin is a concentration. So if I empty out half of, half of the vessel, the concentration is the same. Now, I recognize that your glass of beer is half empty, so rather than bringing a pitcher and topping it off, I bring a pitcher of water and top it off. Well, what is my my vessel? My vessel is now full, but now I've got watered down beer. Okay, the same thing is happening when the body, what it does is it recognizes that the intravascular volume is down. It moves fluid from the interstitial space and the intracellular space into the intravascular space. And in doing so, waters down the blood. And therefore the hemoglobin concentration drops. But it doesn't do that acutely. It takes some time to do that. So when a patient comes in, and they may have a normal hemoglobin, a normal hematocrit, despite having significant blood loss. And that's what's an important concept to keep in mind, is that the body will auto-resuscitate itself. Now, in the case of acute blood loss, intravascular fluid replacement may need to occur in minutes to resuscitate the patient uh, and prevent multiple organ failure. At the same time, excessive fluid resuscitation can result in pretty significant problems in edema, pulmonary uh, congestions, and those of you who hang out in intensive care units, something really horrible called abdominal compartment syndrome where we have to kind of open up people's abdomens and do really some Uh, really invasive things. Now, crystalloids are IV fluids in which sodium is the primary particle that controls the volume of distribution. Now, the most common types of crystalloids used by providers are ringers, lactate, and normal saline. Now, the movement of water through the various fluid compartments is controlled by the biological principle of osmosis, which we've already described. Now, let's just recap on that. Osmosis is the diffusion of water across the semipermeable membrane. Sounds like a test question. Osmosis is the diffusion of water across a semi permeable membrane. Particles that are trapped in a particular fluid compartment act like a magnet to attract water to that compartment. In reality, the trapped particles do not attract the movement of water, but the difference in concentration gradients between the two compartments does. Now, the greater the concentration of trapped particles, the greater the movement of water. Water moves across the compartment of lower concentration to the compartment of higher concentration. As the water moves into that compartment, the concentration of trapped water is decreased as diluted by the newly added water. Water continues to move down the concentration gradient until a difference in concentration between the two compartments no longer exists. In the body, the particles in solution that attract water or exert osmotic pressure are sodium and serum proteins such as albumin. Sounds like another talk coming there. Now, fluids that have equal osmotic pressure with the body under normal conditions are said to be isotonic. Fluids that have less osmotic pressure are hypotonic, and hypertonic fluids have greater than normal uh, osmotic pressure. So again, if you were a a student studying pharmacology, uh, what would be a good question? Is perhaps matching of some sort or multiple choice, isotonic fluids have equal osmotic pressure with the body under normal conditions. Fluids that have less osmotic pressure are hypotonic. Hypertonic fluids have greater than normal osmotic pressure. Another question is what drives, typically, um, whether something has osmotic pressure? Electrolytes, namely sodium, and serum proteins, namely albumin. Now, there are other large molecules, such as proteins or complex sugars, The IV fluids that will exert some osmotic pressure. Now, crystalloid solutions are IV fluids that use electrolytes to provide that osmotic pressure. Colloid solutions. Colloid solutions use complex molecules, such as proteins. And colloid solutions also use complex sugars to exert that osmotic pressure. Now, isotonic fluids contain sodium and other electrolyte concentrations that closely mimic the concentration of the extracellular fluid. Now, in a healthy individual, one hour after infusion of one liter of isotonic fluids, only how much of the infused fluid remains in the intravascular space? Sounds like a a multiple-choice question. If we give somebody isotonic fluid, we give it in, um, in an hour, how much of that 1,000 cc's of isotonic fluid remains intravascular? Is it 100 cc's, milliliters, I'm sorry, let me be proper with my units. 100 milliliters, is it 250 milliliters, is it 350 milliliters, or 500 milliliters? The answer would be 250 milliliters remains in the intravascular space. In a critically ill or injured patient, the amount of fluid that remains in the vascular space can be less than two hundred milliliters. A thorough understanding of hypovolemia and the various forms of volume replacement is required for all advanced providers. Now the causes of hypovolemia are numerous and include bleeding, burns, vomiting, diarrhea, diabetic ketoacidosis, and things like bowel obstructions. A healthy individual has a remarkable capacity to compensate for intravascular volume loss. Therefore, by the time a patient has symptoms of hypovolemia, the pre-hospital provider or the ICU provider can assume that the magnitude of the volume loss is significant. In the case of acute blood loss, a 70 kilogram patient will lose greater than 30 percent of his or her blood volume before exhibiting hypotension. That's something to think about. That you can lose. 30% of your blood volume before exhibiting these typical signs and symptoms that we typically think of, oh, that patient's hypovolemic. Well, how is that possible? It's possible because patients compensate for that loss. We have something that we call homeostasis. We learned this in high school, that what happens is the body will try to compensate for whatever's going wrong with it. And it can do that to a particular point. And once it gets, the body can no longer compensate for that derangement, that loss of fluid, then the patient becomes kind of unstable. The residents who work in my ICU, for instance, I don't let them say that a patient is stable. I say a stable is where you keep a horse. Patients are compensated or uncompensated. A patient who's had blood loss from a gunshot wound or hypovolemia or blood loss and their pressure is 70 over 30, that patient is uncompensated. Now, clearly that patient's hypotensive. But a patient has got a blood pressure of, say, 120 over 80. They're compensated. Are they stable? Well, they may have lost, according to this last sentence we've talked about, 28% of their blood volume. I don't want to be walking around with 28% of my blood volume laying on the street. But they're compensating for that. I don't think we would say that idea by saying somebody's stable gives the implication that all is fine, it's all blue skies, and the birds are singing. No, your patient could be on the threshold of becoming absolutely unwound. And those of us who have cared for children have seen this over and over and over again. A child who's lost uh, blood volume, for say, for trauma, will be... To use the word stable, will be stable, 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 and then they die. The pressure will just drop to nothing. Why? It's because they have an amazing ability to compensate for that blood loss. Now, but older adults, what happens is they're much more like wading into a, a beach, is that as they get sicker, the water gets deeper and deeper, and as you get sicker, it gets deeper in the proportion that you're going down. But in a child, or somebody who's young and healthy, they're like falling off a, a uh, diving into a quarry where the depth doesn't go from you know two feet to three feet to four feet, but the depth goes from like one foot to forty feet, and and that's what we mean by we don't like to say that people are stable. You have been listening to the podcast Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional. We've also posted the same podcast on the podcast ICU Rounds. Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional is a companion podcast to the textbook. Uh, Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional by Jeffrey Guy. That's me. And it is published by Elsevier. You can get that on Amazon. Check out our other podcast, uh, ICU Rounds, uh, also available through iTunes. The price is right on both the podcasts. They are free. Um, Also, if you like the podcast, by all means, go to the uh, iTunes page and uh, leave positive feedback. We would appreciate that. Have a great day. Thanks for listening.